A third of the world's largest companies now have net zero targets in place for carbon emissions. In today's Tech Bytes, Apple's going completely green. 100% of its buildings now run on clean energy. Today, we are announcing the Climate Pledge. Amazon becomes the first signatory. We want to use our scale and our scope to lead the way. Google was ahead of the curve. Back in 2007, it had already achieved its goal of going carbon neutral across all of its offices and data centers around the world. But as demand for Google's services expanded, it knew it had to overhaul its energy goals. And so that's really where Google stepped it up to say, hey, we want to be 24 by 7 carbon-free energy, which is different than the 100% renewable strategy. At the time, Rayford Smith served as Google's global head of energy and location strategy. And part of his job was jumpstarting this massive effort. It was, we want carbon-free energy. We want it everywhere, every hour, every day, at every data center, every facility globally. Um, this is a fundamental sea change in how we do it, and it's considerably harder than what we had been accomplished up to that date. Hitting Google's carbon-free energy target by 2030 meant operating much differently and procuring projects in an entirely new way. So it involves a lot of analytics. It involves a lot of flexibility in terms of your assets. It's why the switch to make it a broader portfolio of assets from just renewable now to uh, carbon-free. Um, this opens the door for much uh, more interesting portfolios, um, for better use of analytics, to manage and match demand and supply, um, and put together those sorts of products uh, that are necessary to make that happen. So Google launched a plan that is one of the most ambitious corporate energy strategies ever conceived. It was only possible because of Rayford and his team's deep experience in the power sector. And it also taught him a lot about where change is accelerating on the grid. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, they don't innovate fast enough. And while it might not always seem like the most cutting edge industry, there are lots of really smart people working really hard to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer centric. This week, I'm speaking with Rayford Smith, the Chief Utility Innovation Officer at AES. After a career spanning more than 30 years in utilities and tech, including two years at Google, Rayford knows firsthand that change is possible at power companies. Rayford has worked inside all kinds of corporate structures. Before becoming AES's Chief Innovation Officer, he was a technology leader at Google's Moonshot Factory, X, and he managed Google's location strategy for energy and water. If you get smart people together, um, and then they're creative, and you give them the leeway to go you know, flex those creative muscles and go try stuff out, you'll figure it out pretty quick, uh, and you'll figure out how to make things work. Today, he's pushing the limits of what's possible at AES, one of the biggest independent power providers in the world. I talk with Rayford about what's needed to spur tech innovation at utilities and the technologies that are integral to the energy transition. Knowing his past roles at Duke Energy, CPS, Entergy, and Southern Company, I started by asking him how the power industry has changed over the decades. Well, um, it, it's, it's changed a ton, and yet it really hasn't changed very much. And I mean that in the most charitable sort of way, which is to say, you know, power still gets generated. It still gets moved over a transmission and distribution system and ultimately, you know, sold to customers. You know, that part of the business hasn't really changed very much and probably never will. There will always be those those kind of fundamentals. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I, I went through that wave of deregulation. I, I worked at Enron. Uh, I worked at uh, Mirant, which became NRG eventually. I, I worked at Duke Energy. I, all these places that 
you know, we're on the vanguard of all the changes that were happening in our industry. And here we are now talking about FERC 2222 and, you know, kind of the 24 by 7 carbon-free energy revolution and like all the things that are coming with technology. And, uh, you know, it's super exciting to be on the vanguard of those, those sorts of change elements. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, there's always another wave of yet the next change to hit the industry. And, you know, I just enjoy the change. I enjoy the opportunity to do something cool. So after your time as the global head of energy and location strategy at Google, you actually moved on to their moonshot arm, which is called X, uh, which is a really cool you know, brand and, and some cool initiatives. What were some of the more innovative solutions you were involved in during your time there? Yeah, I mean, X, uh, well, just think about Google as a, as a company for a moment. Um, you know, it's this massive behemoth that does incredible things with technology. But on the other hand, as you get to be more mature as a company, one of the things you lose um, is you lose your ability to take risks, right? You start to protect um, your, your, your core competencies. Um, X was actually set up to be that innovative uh, edge-based kind of opportunity uh, to really help figure out like what's next, what will be the next scalable thing to hit a billion customers. And uh, I, I got the opportunity, the, the exciting opportunity to join X and really focus on energy-related challenges. Um, you know, when I was running the energy team on the other side, 24-7 is a uh, carbon-free energy is a huge initiative, but it's with existing technology, right? With existing things. Like, what really could we explore? And in that space, I got to focus on a lot of the things coming in the transmission distribution space, um, how do we think about the use of AI, ML in that space? Um, you know, there's a lot of work, a lot of math that goes into that space today. And we can scale it, we can make it go a lot faster, and we can be a lot more accurate with data. And how do we build those tools so that utilities everywhere around the world and their customers get that benefit? And that was the challenge that I got to work on. And it was a blast. It's an amazing set of work to do. Seen a lot more talk of, of AI and ML. You know, what role do you see? technologies like that playing in the energy transition moving forward? Yeah, I mean, it, there's some really exciting things about AI and ML, and then there's some areas that are really challenging. Um, one of the areas that's challenging is the explainability of it. Um, when you're, you're training these models, you're trying to get them to do what they do, and then they go make decisions, it's really hard to kind of backtrace, like, why did you make decision X versus why did you make decision Y? Um, in traditional heuristic-driven models, um, that's very explainable. Like, you can talk through that. If you had to go to a regulator or you had to, to show it to some governing body, you, you could explain it. AI doesn't work that way. It's fundamentally different. Um, that being said, AI, the opportunities for it, though, are just unbelievable because what they can do is automate and enhance a lot of the tedium uh, that people do today. You know, I see, uh, you know, in my own space, I see a lot of uh, system planners who are doing a lot of tedious model development um, and iterations on models that, frankly, not only could we speed up, we could enhance them by having the AI say, like, oh, no, no, this is what's important, this is not what's important, here's, here's all the scenarios that need to be in there, and they could basically jumpstart and speed up that process considerably. Not only that, they could make the analysis far more accurate, far more insightful than they are today. But there's a lot of work that has to be done in that space to make that kind of capability come about. The promise is there, and we'll absolutely get there. But there's just some some significant challenges technology-wise to make sure that, you know, no, you're not going to throw out your Newton Rafts and PowerFlow model tomorrow um, because we've got this cool AI. Like, there's a whole lot of work that goes into making sure it's believable and that utilities can have the confidence that they can safely and reliably operate a system for all customers 
using that technology. Where do you see technology going in the coming years? We've obviously seen a lot of conversation around AMI, smart meters. What's next? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about um, when I think about all the transformation that's going on, like we know about the decarbonization, uh, we know about uh, digital, we know about distributed, and we know about electrification. But like, how does that really translate to the grid of the future? Like, what what is that grid really going to be? Um, we've talked a lot about Flizzer and BVO and kind of these industry stalwarts, you know, ADMS and DERMS. But how does that really all come together? I think one of the most exciting things that we have um, besides AI and the use of technology and analytics is really how do we start thinking about distributed analytics? In other words, how do we, uh, what's a traditionally a head-in with a human operator system, which is inherently slow, how do we start to think about making that system faster and more resilient um, and better? And, and I think the way to do that is really start to distribute the problem solving, the algorithms, the optimization of the grid. And I think what you're going to start to see is you're going to start to see those technologies show up at the edge. Um, you're going to start to see a much more intelligent, interactive ecosystem along the lines of IoT. Um, and I think ultimately what that looks like is a far more capable and transactive grid than the way we've traditionally done it. That is a sea change in terms of how operators work, how our systems work are, and are designed our data is used. And I think that's, that's, to me, that's the next big opportunity in the grid space. How does this impact the types of people that utilities hire? Like, this feels like a very new and emerging skill set. Like, are they, are they prepared now to do what you just talked about? Or is this going to require, you know, different types of talent being infused in the utility business going forward? Yeah, well, I think just the challenge to get from like the traditional way utilities manage and operate grids to that that future I talked about is at least a five year transformation. And you're right, the talent that we have within utilities are kind of trained and used to doing things the way we traditionally do it. Um, I remember in a past life when I was at Duke, we uh, had an emerging technology team focused on the grid, and we had a few folks who were power systems folks, um, but we had to augment that with telecom capabilities, um, with uh, uh, data science, computer science, um, the sort of like digital capabilities we didn't have, um, cybersecurity, like these things were all not normally part of that discussion and not normally part of that that uh, decision-making and, and solution development. I think we've got to start building systems thinkers, building people with these diverse skill sets, um, you know, uh, at, at Google, I could throw a rock and hit a hundred data scientists. Um, but you know, when I built uh, data science teams at Intergy, at CPS, and whatever, like, like we had to homegrown them, we had to make them ourselves, um, and that's fine. You can do that, and you can find incredible people and, and get very, very impactful results from it. But you got to start building it yourself. Yeah, and I feel like we're getting to a point where it is cool to work at a utility, a utility like AES, like Duke. They are doing really cool, innovative stuff. I'm seeing a lot more young talent to be interested in joining utilities because of the clean energy revolution and the need to decarb. It's important work and it's exciting work. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with you. You know, we we uh, AES we actually have a rather young workforce in the engineering spaces, and that's been incredible to work through. And I think I see a lot of folks energized on college campuses that are like, hey, I want to figure out how to make this thing happen. And I, I want to go do it. And at a place like you know, AES, like that's what we're doing. So tech companies like Google are pushing the limits of energy and they're partnering with utilities and helping them push those limits. How would you describe the relationship between tech companies and power companies and how can they be more innovative together? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about 
a power grid is that you know it is a it is a network, and everybody that's connected to it, like we're all in that boat together. The people that operate it, the people that connect to it and use the power off of it, like the people that supply power, like we we are all together. Uh, and I think one of the opportunities that tech companies have is because they're on the leading edge of technology, they can create capabilities probably faster than any other person that's connected to the grid. Um, case in point, um, when I was at Google, one of the things we did was we created the ability to uh, basically forecast forward uh, power prices, uh, grid constraints, carbon content, um, and then dynamically move our load around to take advantage of that. So if there was a storm and there was going to be an outage, you could shift your load away, both in time and in space. Um, if there was an opportunity where low carbon uh, uh, content was or power was being supplied to the grid, we could shift our load to that space. Um, these sorts of digital capabilities um, in a tech company are much easier to create and do than if you were in a traditional manufacturing company or commercial company, because you know Google's and Amazon's and whatever. Um, it's a purely digital infrastructure. It's got a physical infrastructure too, but it's designed to be super flexible. Um, and so what that does is it means that if you look at the tech companies as a power company, you can say, oh, I can see where the leading edge, where all my customers are eventually going to be, and they're developing solutions and technologies that I can adopt that basically can help me bring that about for everyone. Um, and so that's, I think, a great way to partner is to recognize the strengths and inherent capabilities of both sides um, you know, Google's and whatever, they don't understand power grids, power companies, they don't understand tech companies. But if they can say like, hey, each of us can benefit by collectively working on these problems and creating capabilities that are great in our space and applying them to yours, like that's, I think, a great way to partner forward going forward. Yep. So you obviously had a very successful run at Google working on some very cool projects. What brought you back to the power industry and in, in, in your role as chief utility innovation officer at AES? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I missed most about the utility industry was just that sort of day-to-day impact on customers, right? Where, you know, when you're Google, and this isn't to knock Google at all, but you've got, you know, billions of, of customers all over the world, it's it's really hard to go meet them face-to-face and see the impact that your solution has. Um, whereas when you're at a utility, you're inherently rooted to that that country, that space, that place, and you can go out and see customers and see the impact that your new product, your new technology, your new capability has on them. And you can hear directly from them. Um, and for me, like I, I, as I said, I had a very humble background when I started in the industry and I really missed that. I missed seeing the impact associated with that on every, ba- every, every customer on a day to day basis. And so that's why uh, I rejoined the, the industry and why I came to AES was AES of all the companies I was looking at seemed to be one of the very few. Um, that was really seriously trying to figure out what that capability of the future, that utility of the future really looked like and what the technology and the capabilities needed to be to make it happen. Yeah, I, I've always been impressed by AES. Definitely not surprised to see someone like you end up there. Uh, they're doing lots of innovative stuff, going big on renewables. Uh, I think you recently acquired the two gigawatt Bellfield Solar Plus Storage Project, which is under construction in California. Uh, it's set to be the largest solar plus storage project in the U.S. Uh, once it's complete. Can you talk about how that acquisition fits into AES's clean energy strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think what you see from that acquisition and just generally in the space is there is an overwhelming drive by customers, utilities, regulators, like the whole space um, to not just decarbonize, but to transform 
the energy industry. And I think AES, absolutely, not just through that acquisition, but through all of the work that's going on over here, UCS front and center trying to be a leader in every one of those areas, right? We don't just want to be a leader in clean energy. We want to be a leader in the utility space. Uh, we want to be a leader in technology um, because we think you have to bring all of these things together in supply, tech, and the utilities to really make the ecosystem thrive. And, uh, you know, that, that to me is the most exciting opportunity is that you'll see more of those sorts of announcements coming from AES is that we're absolutely serious about it. We're putting our money behind it. Like we are, we are full in, in terms of the transformation. Yeah. You guys are, are walking the walk and talking the talk for sure. Um, I, I think you said you predict a lot of utilities will opt in to be railroads instead of telecom companies. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, uh, that is something I, I say a lot in my, my speeches at conferences, which is that, you know, fundamentally, the industry has, has two choices in front of it. It can choose to be a railroad, which is that it's largely uh, a, a given route with no competition um, and, and very little innovation, not to knock the industry, but it's just kind of the structural nature of a railroad. Um, or you could choose to be a telecom which is to say it's a multi-party, transactional, innovative, product-driven, um, innovation-driven ecosystem. And I think that utilities, like their natural inclination is to be the railroad because that's the safe and it's the consistent thing that they've always done. And it's explainable to, to regulators, it's explainable to shareholders, uh, to Wall Street, like that, that's, the, that's the easy route. I think there are a few mavericks in the field that are trying to be more like the telecom space. Um, and I think those companies, and I would put AES in that category, I think those companies are saying, you know, we could do that, but we think there are actually better returns, better outcomes for customers, and better capabilities for everyone, for the environment, for our governments, uh, for our customers, for everybody in the ecosystem, if we actually do this thing over here and go this innovation route and really put money behind what, what we think are necessary to do the transformation. And I think ultimately, you're going to have people on both sides of that. And I think you're going to have winners and losers on both sides of that. And that's a pretty radical shift. So how will business models in the utility industry need to change to support that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has always um, gotten me most concerned with, uh, with the utility business model is uh, if you think about how long uh, it takes a utility to update its rates. Let's just say it's a 18 months to a year, somewhere in that time frame. But you think about how fast it takes some piece of digital infrastructure like a Nest thermostat to update its algorithm, right? It's seconds. And you think about the inherent mismatch between what's going on between the consumers and that kind of pricing mechanism. You can see that, um, like I would say in my old Enron days, that's an arbitrage, right? Which is to say you've got a mismatch between the rate at which pricing is being done by the utility versus how the system is reacting. And inherently, there's this fundamental problem that if we don't figure out how to make the system, the business model, the infrastructure all work at the same pace, we're inherently going to have problems in the grid. And we can see these things happening today, not just here in the United States, but elsewhere in the world, um, that you know, you see this, the times when the, the infrastructure is going a lot faster than the other the business and whatnot. We, we, I fundamentally believe that utilities um, will have to, and regulators, and, and the technology itself will all have to adapt to this kind of rate change that's very different. Yep. And how is this strategy impacting AES, or how are you incorporating this strategy in your role at AES? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's not just, uh, you see that in the nature of our business, that we have a, we have a clean energy business that's one of the leaders in that space. 
Um, we have AES Next, which is all about inventing the next technologies. Like um, since we're deploying so much solar, um, we have a lot of challenges. The solar panels are quite heavy. Um, they can't be uh, uh, put down rapidly. So we came up with, a, a, we started a, a robotics company that can automatically lay those down. Um, we have another one that can basically, it folds out like an accordion um, to basically speed up those sorts of challenges. We, we're an investor in, and one of the, the leading areas in, in terms of Uplight, and that's a, a leader in the space um, for the customer side. And you'll see us start to make investments on on the grid side too, which is you know, we're trying to invest in and invent those sort of things that help us overcome those problems. But now uh, my focus, my remit is is primarily on the utility, which is how do we take those learnings, those capabilities that we have from those other areas of the business and now embed them deep inside the utility so it becomes second nature to us that our business model works, our pricing and regulatory mechanisms are in sync with it, our insights and analytics kind of flow through all that same capability um, it's a huge challenge, but it's a huge, amazing opportunity. And that's really what I'm focusing on every day is like taking those capabilities and now putting them into the day-to-day, the utility operations and making that work. You mentioned earlier that, you know, it can take 18 to 24 months to implement new rate structures. I mean, that feels like too long for the time varying rates that we need. Why do you think it takes so long and what needs to be true to truncate that down to like, you know, three to six months as opposed to 18 to 24 yeah, I mean, um, there's a actually a, a great set of articles uh, that Doug Hausman, another industry uh, luminary, uh, uh, has written about like how if you really want to transform, what are the things you need to do, um, and just the regulatory mechanism, the legal mechanisms that are are, are around yeah, rate making, utility regulations, and how how they how they do their code of conduct and standards and whatever. It's a patchwork. Uh, it, it's it's very slow because it is a legal proceeding. It just does not lend itself to to these sorts of capabilities. I think we need to fundamentally start to examine that and rethink like what is our approach. Like regulation is there for a very good reason. Um, it's not there, you know, for for fun. Um, it's there to protect consumers. It's there to protect the utility, and it's mostly there to make sure that everyone has access to this amazing thing called the grid and the energy supply that comes from it. We, we've got to fundamentally, I think, rethink that in light of the technology, the third parties, like FERC 2222 is a great opportunity, but I think there's a lot of gray space in there that needs to be figured out. And frankly, I think we've got a few years worth of debate, argument, trial and error um, to work through those issues. And we'll get there, but it, it's going to take some time. There's a lot of momentum right now for grid decarbonization, uh, thanks to continued falling costs for renewables, the IRA. How do you think this will shape the grid through 2030? Yeah, I mean, I think right now what we see most uh, that's being shaped by all of this is that the grid itself has fundamentally got a backlog that's just enormous of things that want to connect to it. Um, you know, I, I always think of this as it's both a terrible challenge, but it's a terrible opportunity, right? It's an amazing chance to figure out how to scale interconnection. Like we've been able, down in the residential household, to have a standard plug. How do we think about that logically and physically for much bigger assets? Um, you know, I can tell you when we were building data centers at Google, you know, in some places it took us seven years to get transmission access. Uh, in other places it took us you know, 18 months uh, to two years. Um, how do we not just shrink and make that more consistent between seven years and two years, but how do we shrink all of that time scale down? There's just an enormous, enormous backlog of need, and as we see, like new manufacturing, electrification, uh, you know, all these things are coming. Like this problem just gets way bigger. 
Um, so that's the challenge. Uh, the opportunity is in, in a- enabling all of that. And I think that the intent behind um, not just the IRA and some of these things is to help jumpstart it. Um, I think our challenge is how do we how do we figure out how to do that and do it at scale and at speed? Um, and, you know, like I've heard people say there's no way to get things on the grid faster than, than 12, uh, the 12 to 18 months. I, I think fundamentally like that, then we still have a problem. Like we should be shooting for three months. We should be shooting for one month. We should be, you know, let's let's set an audacious goal. Even if we don't get to three months, hell, if we get to nine months, that's a lot better than where we were, right? And the more we can compress that down, the more we can electrify, the more we can enable for customers, like, that's our goal. When you look back on your career, what impact do you want to leave on the energy industry? Um, well, I think the one thing I'd, I'd really hope to do is that, uh, or hopefully people look back and say, I, got, I was helpful in helping the industry transform to become what it could be, right? Um, I, I think there's just so much incredible opportunity in front of us that we could seize. Um, I'm just, I just hope we can go do it. So we call this uh, podcast With Great Power, which is a nod to the energy industry. Uh, it's also a famous uh, Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, what superpower do you bring to the energy transition? Uh, probably creativity. Um, uh, due to my very unusual background, um, I'm never one to look at a problem the same way everyone else does. And so that's the, that's the advantage. The disadvantage means that, um, you know, I can be a mile wide, but an inch deep. So I need a lot of help using that superpower. <laughs> Got to surround yourself with the right people, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. People that will, you know, prevent me from hurting myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Rayford, thank you very much. That was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Rayford Smith is the Chief Utility Innovation Officer at AES. With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with PostScript Media. Delivering on our clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify that journey. GridX is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, Dalvin Abouaji, and Camille Stennis, all from PostScript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Marquand. Anne Bailey is our story editor. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If this show is providing value for you and you're enjoying it, which we really hope you are, please help us spread the word. You can rate your reviews at Apple and Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks for listening. I'm Brad Langley. Listener.